Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by El Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Hello, Heidi. Thank you for being with us today. Um, so, firstly, um, what I'd like to talk to you about is, um, well, you're a professor of uh, law and international relations. Is that right? Just law. Just law. What <laughs> <laughs> an interest in international relations, I guess. Yeah. I mean, internet. So I do international law, which ah. we generally we generally tend to think of as actually quite distinct from international relations. Okay. In the sense that IR doesn't address itself to law very much. So. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, no, I I I'm a professor of law. My focus, um, my research focus has historically been uh, international law and conflict focused. Yeah. And that's uh, you work at uh, York University at which is in uh, Canada, right? Yeah, so I'm at Osgoode Hall Law School, which is located at York University in Toronto. Okay, so that's perhaps a good place to to start. Then uh, I'm just interested uh, in uh, getting your views generally on how you conceive of the idea of law. I mean, what 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 is that for you? What does it evoke for you when I say the word law? <laughs> Uh, you know, I've been trying to ima- like reimagine how I may have once thought about this, you know, uh, as a first first year law student, um, and I have no idea. So it's hard to track how things have changed in some sense. Um, and it's, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that it, 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 it. So people will hear this. I'm trying to stave off the reaction I get from from my first year students when I come into class and it's their first international law class, and I say, well. Law is just something we make up as we go along. And then they're like looking at you. <laughs> like, why are we here? Nice, right, and well. Yeah, and you're here because you're you're here for training to enter the international elite ruling class, basically. You're a gatekeeper for the elites. Yeah. No, but it's true. I mean that's what that's what law schools do. So are you saying that like that law is well, the the general preconception of what law is and laws. So, what do you think law is? As of <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, okay, uh, it's okay. Um, well, I'm not a philosopher of law, but it's, I've got a kind of a passing right. passing interest in <laughs> jurisprudence, um, right? As you do, I guess I kind of see it in a sort of in a sort of a conventional sense. I see it in a very sort of contingent sense that, you know, law is, I mean, I guess that's what your students are saying, right? That law mm. is something that's, laws are immutable. You know, there, there's something ahistorical. Uh, to me, like, I mean, I did my, um, uh, I did my sort of a doctoral research on, on Derrida and uh, kind of one of his um, ethics and that kind of stuff. And his one of his yeah. big essays is Force of Law, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And kind of in, in, in that, he, he, he kind of argues that, that, that law is, I guess, uh, it's 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 something constructed. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So Derrida is very um, important too. So I would operate uh, in the strain of critical legal studies, which is basically, yeah. I mean, we're just deconstructing it. <laughs> <laughs> just deconstructed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I, I was recently reading a book. Um, I, I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name. It's like 
Uh, it's called The Play Element in Culture. It's like a book from the uh, sort of 50s and 60s. It's by a chap called um, Johan Huizinga, I'm going to call him. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, he's basically got the thesis that the idea that that, that play is the predominant um notion behind mm-hmm. all uh, all culture and in, in that he, mm-hmm. he looks at the construction of uh, legality and he sees that as something right. kind of you know as a as a he puts it inside what he calls the magic circle which is um, what he means by that i think is a, a a demarcated space where you have contestants and you can see that the law is kind of like that you know it's it's uh, you know it's it's got a sense of the theatrical there's a sense Absolutely. of fictionality about it uh, there's um, there's there's there, there's a sense that there has to be winners and losers, mm-hmm. and uh, in that regard, then it's 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 that, that's I guess how I conceive of it. Is that something mm-hmm. that chimes with um, your thoughts on it, or where you currently are at? Yeah, absolutely. So so um, uh, of course, most so I would say this is very unorth. So I consider myself part of a group of people. I mean, we we call ourselves heterodox thinkers. <laughs> <laughs> about about law which and, and so in other words this so everything you've just articulated I'm very comfortable with um and would take on board unproblematically but that but but, but to situate that within the sort of a self-understanding of the discipline which is simultaneously a profession in in most instances right um uh that's a very very uh that's not a popular um, attitude to take. Why is it's, it not? It's one, well, I mean, for many reasons. I mean, it's not popular because because it challenged. So I, I was I was laughing, but I was serious when I at the beginning of our conversation when I said, "Look, law school is about training for 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 hierarchy." Um, uh, and this is goes back. There's a if people are interested in the stuff, they can read Duncan Kennedy um, at Harvard Law School's uh, early 1980s um, piece on legal education as training for hierarchy and domination and uh you know because this so so recognizing the you wrote you said a law is conventional it's contingent um you said there's a sense in which it's ahistorical or it's some kind of sort of cultural more or less arbitrary not arbitrary may not be the right word but highly fluid and often arbitrary cultural artifact um that you know and an, also an aspect of culture which i think is hugely important right because there's often a sense that law should be placed outside of culture or in relation to it in some way as opposed to being a cultural artifact um but the but but people are uncomfortable with that because that uh, that makes it difficult to train for hierarchy right so right. <laughs> which, that that's why it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable for the profession it's uncomfortable for judge Kavanaugh. it's uncomfortable <laughs> for uh for uh yeah the the high higher echelons of the hierarchy of the legal and political system because law is also just a branch of government right right yeah i mean yes yeah, well it's 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 essentially an institution yes absolutely yeah yeah sure and yeah, and I guess in a sort of a political sense, then do you think that law is something that uh, is reproduces hierarchy? That's its function. Absolutely, it reproduces it and re-inaugurates it in different modes. 
in that sense, it is historical because if, you know, so, so, so wonderful historical people who work from some kind of roughly historical methodology will be able to explain just different aspects of loss functionality in relationship to the way in which domestic or global power is being exercised in X, Y, or Z scenario at a given point in time. You're so, uh, you're comfortable with, um, I guess, sort of postmodern interpretations of law. And by that, I mean, you know, thinkers like, yeah. you know, like we mentioned Derrida, Foucault, Lyotard, these, these, these type of thinkers. Well, I wouldn't say that. Can I reformulate that? So I would say, I would say I'm not, uh, it's not that I'm comfortable with their approach to law, which, it, which often is flawed. I would say, um, part of what mm-hmm. we're doing as legal scholars, right? And, uh, which is funny because like law, as I said, law is, like you said, law is an institution. So it's funny to then translate it into some kind of scholarly field. It is actually. Um, but what we do is sort of do our own take. <laughs> and there are different, you know, some people are straight up Marxist, some people are more postmodern, whatever, but it's not that we're taking on board Foucault as such, but more, um, doing our own thing with, with a more, in other words, with a more precise, and differentiated appreciation of actually how law works, because those people don't really have a good understanding. <laughs> okay, so 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 I'm wondering then. I mean, I guess the accusations that's you have uh, uh, holding on to those caveats that you mention. Um, what is your take then on say what people accuse uh, sort of the postmodern theorists of or say postmodern understandings of law and the usual accusation is that it's you know it's it leads to both moral relativism and yeah. epistemological relativism that's you know right. that the law should be about you know it may be fictional and it may be theatrical but it has very le- real effects you know i mean it has yeah so like you know you're if you're, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're about, if you're on death row and you're wrongly accused, it's hard to kind of sort of postmodernize that away. So that's a that's a great question, because I think there are two kinds of accusations, um, and they're different, right? Um, accusations against people who take some kind of um, postmodern or like generally leftist approach to uh, to the study of law. So one is this re- so. Someone who's made a claim of moral relativism in the sense that that would facilitate some kind of obfuscation or um, ignorance towards the material or real, as you said, effects of law hasn't engaged with critical legal scholarship. <laughs> in, in, <laughs> so yeah, wrong, well, they haven't yeah. read it. <laughs> or if they've read it, they are dumb. So the the thing is that no, I'm sorry, it's true though. But it's it's uh, not to put too fine a point on it. But the 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 thing is because the point of the postmodern not I'm, I was about to say the postmodern term and I thought that's ridiculous. The point of of critical legal studies as a methodology of studying and operating within the power structure that is the law is precisely to be able to more clearly articulate from a distributive uh, 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 material sense what actually um, the impacts, not not just in some kind of like, let's go out and do, you know, analytic research and measure impacts and that kind of thing, but to figure out like, you know, 
concretely who are the winners and losers who and that from a political sense and well as well uh and what are the stakes uh what are the costs and benefits why you know why are we doing this and so the, the idea is i think uh, so in other words the method is not undergirded in any sense by a way by by some kind of conviction that we shouldn't be using law to affect more appropriate outcomes in society it's asking us to realize that in order to be able to affect those outcomes and to more um, usefully leverage the law as a tool of, of either strategy or tactics in a concrete political fight, you need to understand uh, the, let's say, constructive nature of law for, as shorthand, for example. I think, I think I follow you. So what you're saying is that I guess what sort of separates your thinking from, say, an out and out postmodernists where everything is right. constructed, everything is, you know, just interpretation upon interpretation. You're saying that we can have that, but we also need to attend to, well, real concrete yeah. outcomes of, 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 yeah. of legal cases or um, the, the materiality, as you say, of it. So, you know, I mean, you know, that laws can make society better or can make society worse in a real objective sense. No, absolutely, absolutely, and I mean that is in some that might be a general explanation for why people in my sort of camp, or for lack of a better word, are frustrated with postmodern thinkers themselves. It's because it's because they don't understand law, like they don't concretely, like just like really structurally understand how the institutions work in society, um, that they're not under, able to understand the way in which I mean, law enforces indeterminacy, basically. <laughs> Right. Okay. So law well, enforces indeterminacy. Yeah. So it's an enforcement tool. Yeah. So it's an so so all we've just they've established they Derrida whoever has has established that it's all constructed and relative and we've taken that on board, but we understand that things legal doctrines a given legal doctrine would be constructed by actual people with actual political projects in actual governments or municipalities, or the United Nations, or whatever, right, trying to make their political projects real in the world through the leveraging um, of, of legal structures, right? So they're none of, so in other words, none of it's accidental. So, the, so that's why arbitrary is not such a great word, because um, uh, the constructed nature of law is not accidental. It's there to serve um, purposes, and those purposes are served, as you said, by put, sometimes putting people in jail, or, you know, um, garnishing their assets or whatever, right? In other words, there's a concrete enforcement there. Sure, absolutely. There is, yeah. I mean, that's, it's called prison, yeah. Yeah, well, prison in the, in the worst, I mean, yes, prison in the worst sense. Um, sometimes, you know, capital punishment as well. But yeah, that's why I think as well, people and in particular, like any students of law and other scholars who think deeply about that, about this stuff, that is partly why they're uncomfortable. It, it makes it makes people very uncomfortable to realize that we're putting people in prison for no reason. That means no good reason. In other words, it's very difficult to come up with a, a fully defensible reason. Could you give us an example, do you think, to help? Well, I mean, I... <laughs> I mean, I tend to think I'm a bit of an extremist from a, a criminal law perspective. I'm sort of a I I I'm I'm saying this like facetiously right now, but the the um you know how there are all these like uh abolitionists like prison prison abolitionists and stuff. I mean, I agree with with the project in the sense that I don't think we should have criminal law is not a useful way of managing social issues. 
it never helps. Right. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the sort of uh, that's a very common what's the word uh, shorthand, isn't it? People say you can legislate morality. I mean, for example, like the, the Volstead Act or something like prohibition. You can't just legislate people into not drinking alcohol. So, so okay. So, what I would say about that is like we we legislate. So, it's the most obvious arena in which the law works to legislate morality is and historically has been the criminal law. But I'd also so you're totally right. Okay. Um, but I'd also make clear that when we talk about legislating morality or even just legislating like a worldview, a political worldview which might have moral components or whatever. That's what other aspects of the law do all the time as well, right? So there's a very – so in other words, the Western liberal legalist approach to doing law, so um, you know, also like Anglo-American approach, right, is very centered on a particular idea of who is a proper subject of law, the autonomous individual, right? Um, and who, who has legal rights and responsibilities, who gets to be able to use the law in order to vindicate, um, their claims. Um, and, and in other words, there's a certain standpoint, right, that the law takes that, that, that also has moral implications, but yet nothing, nothing so obvious as, you know, the targeting of drugs and alcohol, for example. That's a good place to ask you then, I think. What is the, what do you see as the, what well what what do you think uh Heidi are your your biggest perhaps frustrations with the limitations of that very system my goodness that's a big question i mean so so frustrations with the legal system i mean i i honestly i really conceive of myself as try, right now my pro, my personal um intellectual project as trying to make people like everyday people as as well as the students i'm training for you know, entry into global hierarchy, <laughs> global systems of hierarchy and power reproduction. But anyway, so the, the <laughs> I've actually made, just making them understand that basic fact. And the reason why that's so important, it's important, you know, I think across any field that attends to the question of power in society generally, but, you know, so philosophy, but, 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 but law in particular is very, uh, it's just, extraordinarily good at um, uh, constructing um, and narrating uh, justifications for itself, right? So another – Ah, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so so the legal system we have, and again, broadly, broadly um, you know, across – let's just say across the West – um, we tell ourselves stories from an incredibly early age. Like, I don't know if you take in the US, you would take like civics class. Like we have some version of that in Canada. I forget what it's called. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it did not make an impact on me at all. And I, re I remember sitting there going, God, this is bullshit. <laughs> you know, because they do this. So, so the way that this proceeds, there are so many different ways in which this proceeds and some sub areas of law have their own as well. Um, founding dominant narratives about the authority of the field and the structure. So it's not just like the law itself, like all of the subfields do as well, right? So you can tell one of these dominant narratives in any, like if you're doing tax or if you're doing criminal law, if you're doing international law, whatever. But if you go into that, I don't know, what's it called? Do you have this in the UK? The, like the equivalent of a civics class? Uh, well, I, well, I grew up in Ireland, so uh... – 
Uh, yeah, there's a version of it. I can't remember what it's called actually. I think I think it must be. I think it's called. Uh, I think it was called Civics. Uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get it, but no. So, no. <laughs> but you'll go in and so and uh in Canada we uh we um got so we've had a, a constitution for many years but we got um a uh what the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982 which was a big um moment in uh shift in constitutional law um in Canada and its relationship to Britain um and also its relationship to uh, basically having, yeah, a written constitution that lays out fundamental rights and freedoms. Um, so that changed the way we did law quite a bit in Canada. But in order to, that was recent. That was 1982. There's also the British North America Act, which is also our constitution, which is from the 19th century. Nobody puts that on the wall, right? But they put, but they put, uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms on the wall. Um, and, and as this, you know, uh, um, uh, what's the, like, what would a religion, religious like what would the catholic church have what do you call these things like uh, something you worship deity a god an icon a yeah exactly it's great so shibboleth is a great word for that's what we're doing and then in the u.s they have their con they like, like you know have pictures of the constitution everywhere and whatever and it's a bit different in the uk because there's a written constitution but um but that is yeah <laughs> we have her on our money too oh yeah I, I, of course i forgot that yeah ah! oh he's our head of state so <laughs> Uh, so we have these narrative. In other words, that's the beginning of an of uh, of a narrative process of of it's not wrong to say indoctrination, right? Into an acceptance of the authority of the system that you're in. In other words, simply buying into the whatever version of the social contract that your your society um, holds out to you. So yeah, so I mean, it's it's in 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 regards to that, then it's a case that. The law is something that is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it's espousing sort of dominant narratives or dominant stories about what a society is. Absolutely. It's highly, I mean, for the, 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 it's, it's a foundational, so constitutional moments, there's a, a real turn to constitutionalism over the last, like, say, 25 years globally, right? Constitutional moments are taken extremely seriously. Um, especially like in newer transitional societies, for example, really revered and um, uh, 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 religious almost experiences. It's not wrong. I mean, they're, they're, it's all theological, this, in profound ways. So I'm wondering, how, how does that play out in the, how does, well, generally, how does the theological play out in how you frame law? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. Um, do, you, do you mean, so there are different ways of thinking about that. I mean, I mean, theolo theological, I think, is a good way of explaining people's relationship to that's all the I mean. law. That's all I mean. Not, you... not, not like separation of church and state or the relationship of church and state. That's a yeah, question. the, the, the former, not the latter. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a separate question, but that's what people tend to talk about often in this room. And yeah, I mean, I it's... it's it's just like these documents are 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 worshipped. Um, just think of the theater of the courtroom and compare that to the theater of the church, right? So you go into a courtroom. I was in a courtroom on Monday observing a trial, you know, and you go in. The judges are in, in their 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 robes, like they look like priests. Mm -hmm. Like that's by design. <laughs> Yeah, they got they got really fluffy wigs over here. Yeah, too. No, I know, I know. I have, I wore my friends once for fun. It was good. But um, me too, me too. Has, of course, you gotta do it. I know, I know, I know. 
And and the lawyers do as well, you know, and then they've got their various accoutrements and then there's like clear signals of hierarchy and who gets to, you know, who has power over who else and who can be reversed and whatever. And it's it's all, you know, and if there's this profound way in which you can look at pieces of legislation, you know, as like, uh, you know, codexes in some kind of medieval sense. And that's not um, it's not really surprising. It just causes you to have to think down and like consider what's happening in front of you right oh and they're all like up on a pedestal like literally on a dais and everything the judge and you know and they're separated the clergy separated from from the people who are sitting in the back yeah, you know and, there's a dimension of the confessional there yeah, as well well this of course right and Foucault and the whole thing no it's very so that so they're procedurally and like structurally huge overlaps but then also just like historically like the middle ages preceded <laughs> this is like a hor- horrifyingly simplistic version of what actually happened, but like the Middle Ages <laughs> preceded uh, uh, a long, uh, a long struggle, uh, as a decade, sorry, centuries long struggle um, over competing legal systems, right? So the you know the the Pope versus the kings, you know, right. was the state. So uh, which required, of course, the church to have law as well. So it's not like the state was the first. You know, the state was not the first entity to come up with law. It was the church, which far precedes the modern state. So this isn't like natural law you're referring not to. Like canon law. You're right. Yeah, kind of Sharia law or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Ton of it. Yeah. Huge field. Yes. Now, if you go to the, um, I think you 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 spent some time in London, did you not? I did. Yeah, I did a postdoc um, in London. At SOAS, I think. The British yeah. Academy postdoc, and I was based at SOAS. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure if you, when you were here, you got to visit the old Bailey uh, in London, which is. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, man, over the old Bailey, um, there's a statue of um, a lady with scales and a blindfold. I think, if I think that's right. Um, but that's the uh, the idea is that the law should be disinterested, it should be neutral, it should be impartial, right. and that this should because it should be fair in some way. It should be that should be, um, there should be equality before the law for all citizens, I guess. Mm. Now, how, how, how does that work with the elaboration of hierarchy that you're talking about? How can equality disrupt the hierarchy? I mean, or is that like, that is just basically the million dollar question, isn't well, it? Well, yeah. But I mean, but even getting to that question, you see, takes quite a bit of groundwork, right? And it's, so this is great. So being able to show that, like, actually, this is the question that we should be attending to is, you know, not something that's in any way obvious and requires a lot of 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 legwork um but you know i i I mean so basically fairness is a lovely term because but you know what Mm -hmm. an even better question would be uh how how do we make sense of our desire for equality That's a much better question. That's a much better question. How do we make sense of our desire for equality um, within uh, uh, the strictures uh, of the institutions in place? In other words, when we're claiming a a desire for equality, we're claiming like justice, like justice with a capital J, right? As though that should mean something to us. And the idea there, this is the genius of liberal, liberal liberalism, like in general, <laughs> is to say, is to, to have these claims 
that we all agree these normative impulses, the desire for equality and justice and fairness, right? To have these normative impulses that we all like just agree upon, even though they are substantively completely empty. So you have to do work. You have to do concrete political work in order to fill up uh, the content of justice or the content of equality. In other words, when we talk about – so when the law talks about you know, everyone should be equal before the law, they don't mean – they don't mean everyone should be economically equal in the sense that there should be uh, you know, a minimum or maximum wage. <laughs> no, they, <laughs> that's they, not what they it don't mean, mean that, that's no. That's, that's categorically not what it means. Right. It means means formal equality uh, in a procedural mode uh, and in a in a a mode that attends to civil and political rights rather than economic and social rights. Okay, so then if I look at sort of the the, the British situation at the moment, so one of the big debates that we have here at the moment in uh, in the legal profession is that. we have had successive uh, governments. Uh, so we've had uh, in 2010, we've had the uh, conservative liberal coalition. And then we now have a conservative DUP coalition. And, in, and we had a sort of a conservative majority government. So we've had three successive conservative governments, basically. And they have imposed uh, an economic um, uh, austerity yep. uh, agenda. Basically, sort of, they've been cutting public services left, right and center. I, now, I, I witnessed that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the consequences of that for the legal profession is yes. that um, it means that uh, barristers and lawyers who serve as uh, what we call legal aid, so it's for you know it's, uh, giving people who have less money uh, legal representation, they're, because they're less funded, they have they, they have less access to the law basically. So that, that yeah, so there that's kind of I guess what you're talking about there beyond the postmodern interpretation of the law, you're talking about how we can substantively fill up the law with a different discourse, I guess, you know, something beyond sort of the nice naive word that is fairness. Is that right? No, absolutely. So like, I don't pursue postmodern methodology for its own, like masturbatory sake. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Like, I mean, a lot of people do. You're the first person on the, pod- the podcast to mention masturbation. Well, we can almost be here to talk about me too. I mean, it could get much worse, but there's. <laughs> I, I might, I might, I might possibly edit this bit out. That's nothing. God, my free speech. <laughs> uh, of course, of course, of course. You can say what you want. You can say what you want here. It's a podcast, but, uh, but it, uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, you're making the accusation of, I guess, postmodern that it's a bit like postmodern theorists. Can be some somewhat um, uh, masturbatory. Yeah, obviously. I mean, so can so can a lot of things. But I was just joking. I mean, I and in other words, I actually don't. I think it would be irresponsible if, especially if you're in a field that deals explicitly with how power is parceled out in society. You know, you can't do do law without having some kind of normative or political project, even if it's very broadly conceived. So my normative and political project is that of a socialist who uh, has a conception of of um, you know what society should look like uh, that that is more substantively justice based. Right. So I have an idea. Socialists have an idea, as you know, is what justice means. Um, and it and it it means has to mean much more than simply something like equality before the law. But yeah, I mean, it's I just want to point out. I don't know if your listenership is primarily 
like Irish and and British, but um. Uh, American and American British. British. Okay, so so um, the access to justice question or uh, that you mentioned with yeah, I just wanted to really underline how bad the the absolute gutting of the um, legal aid system in the UK is right now. How how yeah. dire it is. Um, uh, and so if people are interested in sort of <laughs> – because, you know, they, it's very hard for the liberal legalists, the people who think that equality is about um, fairness and not economic um, equality. So it's fairness to individuals, is that right? Or fairness to individual legal agents? Fairness in the sense that, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, basically. It's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. And there, there's – so that's for them what fairness would mean. Um, and in some senses, neutrality, the, even the idea that the law should be neutral, in a strong sense, promotes the notion that we should um, let individuals be free to do as they choose, right? <laughs> so, and we are obstructing individual. So this is very everyone. This is obvious that we are obstructing an individual freedom um, and individual agency, which is the bedrock of modern uh, liberal legalism. Every time we start um, messing with government uh in ways that uh you know coerce people's ability to 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 spend their entire paycheck without having to pay taxes or something like that so um but so it's 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 important to point that out because a lot of people just they they have this like, crazy notion of you know public interest barristers as making lots of money that's not true which though. is absolutely i cannot say this strongly that people just need to know this it's so not true they that's not true. No, yeah, I know a lot. Of, I know, I know barristers. Yeah, that, that they, they get very underpaid. Awful, awful. It's shameful. Basically, the the expectation, the unstated, although culturally understandable, and this has to do with the hierarchy point. Expectation in the UK is that if you're a barrister, you somehow have family money that you can just, you know, get you through when you're when the solicitor decides not to pay you, which happens a lot. Or the or you don't get approved for legal aid, which often the approval process happens after um, the legal process has actually started and you've done tons of work. <laughs> Absolutely, and I mean you you might be up against someone from a a richer social background who has uh, can afford you know a, a legal firm with with uh, the best lawyers and uh, who can who's got more money to have interns and all of this kind of thing. Yeah. So I would just if listeners are I have to I have to plug. Um, this colleague of mine who's great on this, if listeners are interested, check out Paul Kingsley Clark at Garden Court Chambers on, on the gutting of the legal system in the UK, but <laughs> just because it is such an important issue. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it in the, um, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, um, yeah. So, I mean, is what you're saying then, Heidi, that, um, that the only, <laughs> the only justice is economic justice. I think it's hard to think. I think what I would say to that is that it might be hard. It would be hard to come up with a workable or defendable concepts of social justice before um, we have economic justice. Do you know what I mean? So right now we're putting the cart before the horse. So you're saying we should concentrate on political questions of economic justice and then we can look at how that that's applied in uh, legal institutions and the legal profession. Well, I mean, I think Sort of. What I'm saying is like right now, when I say so, okay, so perhaps what I was trying when I said social, okay, let me see. So right now we have the ideology that we are operating within says that if we give in, if we, um, in sh if the state 
ensures through its um, legal system the civil and political rights of individuals, uh, then um, we will have uh, social right. justice in some – like that's what social justice means in some weird way, right? What I'm saying is that's relatively substanceless because uh, how in the world could you possibly ensure equal access to civil and political rights, even if they're articulated in terms of radical liberal individualism, which they are, if you don't have um, some sense of economic uh, I mean, I don't know if equality is the right word, but some sort of economic justice, as you said. Okay, um, that's, yeah, I think I'd, I'd largely agree with that, uh, personally at least. Um, but uh, I think I've been t- we've been talking for about 40 minutes and we haven't even got on to the main uh, <laughs> sorry, topic. Yes, uh, sorry, no, 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 it's been great, it's been great, I love it. Um, so the, um, so my next question then is... I was just being is, Canadian uh, and apologising. <laughs> You get that from the British, I guess, yeah? Oh, yeah, fair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I'm Irish, never apologise. <laughs> only, you only do that in confession, basically, yeah. Um, I'd probably edit that out as well, Heidi. Um, <laughs> my freedom of speech to, uh, to, to not be embarrassed. Um, uh, okay, so um, the next question is, maybe we can look at one of uh, the places where you... Uh, where, where you kind of sort of uh, drill down, so to speak, uh, into sort of the legal practice, and that's your um, your writings on uh, sexual consent, right? Um, uh, so I'm 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 trying to think how we can sort of link this up. I mean, well, is it the case for you, Heidi, that uh, sexual consent is 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 something that that is well, our understanding of sexual consent is something socially constructed. It changes and evolves over time. Correct. That must be... Okay, yes. got it in one. Yeah. But that must be uncomfortable for people, the idea that... Also correct. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea that consent can change, yeah, or, yeah. or, or the, the, <laughs> the, the giving and the withdrawing of consent. You know what's so funny about that general... And that, so that's actually a great way of positing... Um, you know, one of the ambiguities, let's say, that's involved in the current social climate uh, is this weird notion, like the um, the tenacity with which the mainstream, and I say that in terms of the mainstream public, but also the mainstream, um, you know, journalism and mainstream politicians and mainstream lawyers so like just regular mainstream liberal society really is tenaciously holding on to um this idea that uh somehow we didn't properly understand consent before november 2017 or october so you're referring here to the me too movement. yes exactly and uh and that uh 
we didn't understand consent. Consent is super important. You can't have social justice with regard to human sexuality without an understanding of consent. And that the, the reason they, they, they go a step further, this is extremely problematic because there's a causal, there's at least um, an implied causal connection or claim being made right between so, some kind of mythical lack of understanding of sexual consent be- before October 2017 and now um a rediscovery this is this kind of story narrative um justificatory narrative that the law pursues um and that also now society is pursuing is is really interesting right now we have rediscovered consent which was there all along but we didn't really get it right and so so in other words, what they're doing is they're pulling on the immutability or static quality of the notion of consent that you started your question with, right? At the same time as they are invoking the um, inherent mutability <laughs> of of consent and the specific there's some specific ways in which that second part is happening one of them um is is uh very vocal calls socially politically and legally um to move toward a different system of uh understanding what precisely constitutes sexual assault that uses or deploys a concept of consent, which is, let's say, affirmative. There's also um, an enthusiastic consent model. So in other words, consent is not just one thing, even though we're very, you know, very strongly want to say it is. It can also be affirmative, right? It can also be enthusiastic. It can also be uh, established, you know, established uh it with different burdens of proof attached etc cetera, etc cetera. so there are different modalities in which we can roll out does that make sense so it's a weird yes mode. they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth at the one time right yeah. so uh, when you say they this is people in the me too movement so, I, right? so I think that they is the me too movement people but also this is this is, I would say, the orthodox view within general liberal progressive society in general. Okay, so, and what you're calling for, I think, is you're, you know, put in its most simplest formulation, is you're calling for, I guess, a richer, more nuanced account of consent, one that incorporates affirmative, enthusiastic consent and even negative consent. I don't know, what would you mean by negative consent? Yeah. What, what do you mean, the luck? People, Go ahead. Like people could be coerced into consenting. I can imagine a situation like that happening. Oh, just you mean just ab- oh, just an absence of consent? Yeah, sure. Well, the que- the, the legal the le- so the legal qu- if if we're speak and the legal and social question these questions are not separate, even though many people would want to make them separate. So a lot of me tooers <laughs> will say you know I'll I'll, I'll say I uh, start asking questions that sound legalistic, and I understand that that causes a certain reaction in people um and they and they will respond saying look we don't care about the law what we care about is this is a a movement for social change this is a movement about shifting the culture shifting rape culture in scare quotes right toward consent culture and my response to that is yeah but what do you think the law 
why do we have law? Because it constructs what we think of as culturally and socially acceptable behavior in society. <laughs> you know, in other, in other words, culture and law are co-produced. This is a very basic postmodern point as well. Right. So, uh, you know, so so the and, and this all to say that I was about to answer your question by speaking from a legal standpoint and then people would be listening and say, we don't care about the law, we care about society, and I'm saying that's an untenable statement. So the legal way of thinking about that, uh, the legal question always in a sexual assault case, you mentioned negative consent, the legal question is, um, the broad legal question would be whether or not consent to the um, activity in question was present or absent. So that's the basic question. And that's what people try to establish in a courtroom in, say, uh, I don't know, if someone's being prosecuted for sexual violence or something. Yeah, I mean, obviously, all of the elements of the offense have to be proved, but but um, but the presence or absence. So but the, the question uh, often will turn on the presence or absence of consent. Yeah, you can't prove if, if there is some kind of if there's reasonable doubt about the fact that two people were even in the same room together, that would be dispositive. But I'm, but, you know, and but but when you get to the question of consent, that's the whether activity was consensual or not is the key question. Right. And you think uh, and you're trying to articulate a richer thing, a richer notion of consent. What would that entail? Well, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I'm not actually so I don't think I'm doing that. Um, I think. uh so let me try and let me try and reconstruct that and see if this makes sense to you. Um, so uh, I am doing f- several things. One of them is a critical engagement with the notion of consent as either a necessary or useful way of thinking through um, the kind of social or rather the kind of sexual activity that society wants to promote and and sanction, right, in a positive sense. Um, so I think it's far from obvious that consent can help do very much in helping us, quote unquote, solve the problem of the scourge of sexual assault, which is obviously okay. a problem. I understand. You know what I mean? And uh, I don't think that's a straight forward proposition i think it's an objectionable position so i actually somebody who would be trying to so i am trying to complexify and add nuance and texture and all of that Mm -hmm. but not because i'm interested in doing a law reform project see my point i I think so so i think so what you're saying is that well i mean i think you're, you're it's almost like you're saying heidi that like consent is um just a very very small part of this uh, the the problem of sexual violence and um, how sexual violence is framed legally and how sexual violence is framed economically and politically uh, and that um, absolutely at the at at, uh, at at the same time I guess what your how where you're critical of say the Me Too movement and I want to get this right uh, is that. Uh, you're saying they're overemphasizing the role of consent on that. Is that, yeah, that be right? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Because it's a very, it's a very easy thing to turn to, you know, so, and it's also an easy, uh, it, it became, it's, it has become, um, an easy slogan, you know. So if you Google Me Too, 
right? I'm going to do this now just for shits and giggles. If you <laughs> Google Me Too and go to the images section, um, you see the Me Too hashtag, but you also see things like project consent. Consent means this. Consent means that, uh, you know, uh, we are for consent or whatever. Like it's, there, there are lots of slogans, um, about, uh, uh, consent as an anecdote in some sense to, uh, whatever, like extremely complicated gendered economic story we have about, um, sexual assault. I think one of the things that I was picking up from your writings on this, uh, and I think in particular your 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 article in Eon, and again I'll put up, I'll put up a link to it, um, is that one of the things that you have with the or one of the problem one of the problems with an aspect of the Me Too movement that you have is that there's a kind of a you have a problem with the epistemology of it. I think yes, which is yes. the idea. Yeah, so it's like it's kind of the idea that we're taking opinion as truth. Right, so that our opinion ought to be taken as truth. Mm-hmm. Is is that right? Is is that what the Me Too movement are doing? Ah, uh, yeah. So that's a really interesting question. Yes, and you're right. There are really so many angles. Epistemology right? I mean, is absolutely one of them. Yeah, I mean, it's in, it's in the it's in the it's in the title. Like Me Too, it's a it's about a subjective expression, I guess. Opinion is fact, and then I think there's a different. There is a there is a useful distinction between um, opinion and personal experience. Right. So, so I think, so me too is not necessarily, although opinion does come into it, right? Because my part of my argument is that me too has become an ideology. Me too ism is like a saying, I think. Uh, so I do think it's an ideology, but the general proposition would be, and this is an, so if you were, again, if you were, were to consider this in explicitly legal terms, this is an evidentiary argument. And it's not wholly without merit, but we need to understand the structure of the argument space that we're working in. So, and, and Jeannie Souk, um, who's at, who's also at Harvard Law, um, she writes in the, in the New Yorker and she's done, uh, I, I think she d- wrote this in a piece she had written about, um, the Cosby trial. So I'm, so I'm just taking this, you know, lifting this directly from her where she said, um, something like the Me Too claim is a direct evidentiary claim in the sense that, um, if something if you're claiming something that you say happened to you happened to me too, that makes it factually more likely that the thing happened to the both of us. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, so I mean that, and that's, and that's not, no, but that's, that's how, that's one way in which the law, now there are lots of problems epistemologically with, with um, the law of evidence, right? But, but the idea is that if you can show, um, that uh, the same thing happened to multiple people. It's more likely that the thing happened. In other words, that there's a social problem with sexual assault. I don't think that's. Do you, is that a problem for you as a philosopher? No, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think that would be controversial. I mean, um, I mean, the big case in Britain was the Savile case. I'm yes. not sure if you followed yeah. it when you were yeah. here, and it's uh, it really was a case that 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 there were so many people offering testimony. Yes. That it, 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 you know, it was like, there was a tipping point where I said, oh yeah, this, is, I mean, why would so many people, you know, make, make up a collective lie about this, this is clearly true. No, absolutely. So, 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 so one needs to be, re- and, and thank you for being so, um, painstaking in your pursuit of clarity with the issues because, no, seriously, because, uh, because these claims, in order to have a pro- because so then someone turns to you, a feminist, for example, says, how can you call yourself a feminist? 
or even a leftist, right? So I'll get called like an MRA person. <laughs> like I'm like I'm a hidden uh you know sorry, what is MRA? Oh, men's uh, rights activist, you know these people? Oh yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they'll be right. Yeah, the idea is that I'm some kind of like embedded Trojan horse <laughs> MRA of the patriarchy. Yeah. yeah, it's just like completely absurd. But but people believe that. And I think in that in the some in some sense that makes sense because the evidentiary argument has something to it. Right? Right? Mm. Now yeah. what's problem for the reasons you outlined. Exactly. Yeah. So that's uncontroversial from your perspective as a um, philosopher in my perspective uh, from just a judicial perspective that makes sense now where it becomes controversial however uh is the um the the uh the traveling right so this notion this evidentiary argument um has been picked up and transported into the realm of general cultural production and through, uh, mainly through the vehicle of social media. Okay. Now, the structure of the argument still makes sense. The structure of the evidential, evidentiary rather argument still makes sense. What, where it starts to fall apart though, um, is that we don't have any way actually of managing the various testimonies that are put into the Me Too soup, right? Or of, I'll use the word policing again, ironically, right? That, that, or we don't have any way of managing those testimonies. We don't have any way of policing them for accuracy. Okay. And yeah. accuracy doesn't just mean, is she lying? That's too, that's too grotesque and, uh, like, uh, what's the word? It's just simple. It's, it's not, it's just dumb, right? So very, so of course, very few women are going to make up stories out of whole cloth about sexual assault. Of course, that's true. I would never say that that's, you know, I mean, of course, everyone makes up stories all the time, but of course, that's not plausible. But there are various other things that will enter into the process of testimony accumulation or, um, dis and distribution that should give us pause about how we assess the social and political and legal meaning that we should attach to X, Y, or Z, Me Too contribution, right? Does that make sense? Do you follow? Yes. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, and so those things could be like, uh, right. So you don't have to say that someone's necessarily lying. Uh, you'd want to assess exactly what the claim being made is. So a lot of the, you know, whether or not it um, pulls on actual lack of consent or whether it pulls on, uh, you know, more socially structural lacks of consent. In, in other words, um, whether, you know, uh, formally, so an example of this would be formally, whether there, you know, she said no or clearly indicated no through words or actions, in other words, um, or whether she simply, we want to actually say the power differentials um, at play in X or Y workplace made it such that actually she was incapable of ever truly consenting. Do you see how those claims are like radically different? And th that's just one example. Okay, so those claims are radically different claims, and we need to have a con like a really 
I this is my my own desire would be to have a really frank and this is hard work. I understand it's hard for society to talk about sex in a way that makes any sense. <laughs> That's a big ask. I get it. Well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't lend itself to the categorization, does it? By definition, it's a yeah. really big ask. But I think it's really important. So the only good thing about the movement, it's not a movement, but the only good thing about it is that it's it could potentially allow us to start doing that. It hasn't to date, so I'm not hugely hopeful, but. But I mean, I consider my work as part of that. So in other words, um, in order to, you you know, we cannot just uh, like go. So someone says. So, for example, can could Monica Lewinsky consent to um, the activity that took place between her and, and President Clinton? Right. So she uh, she. Lewinsky had historically always claimed that it was consensual. Okay, what happened was consensual. Post Me Too, she has now claimed, I believe in Vanity Fair, that uh, it was not consensual because of the extreme power differential. Now, I don't, I have my own opinions about normatively about what sorts of attitudes we should take to that, but I don't need to, I don't need to even state my opinion here because all I want to point out is that it's a really big open question socially about whether we should start sanctioning either from the point of employment law or human rights law or, you know, whatever, uh, not just criminal law, like all these other areas of law that actually are being called into play, if we should start sanctioning an understanding of consent um, that uh, allows us as, you know, a quasi-neutral third party, so-called neutral third parties, right, to act um, as judge and jury and say that uh, uh, that uh, now it doesn't matter what Lewinsky thought at the time. <laughs> what matters uh, is the, the structural... Um, the level of, 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 of either economic power, age, whatever disparity, right? Um, power disparity is present between the parties. And that, all of that requires like an affirmative theory of what, uh, power imbalance means. Right? Yeah. So you need to do, you need to do more work than just talk about consent. We need to talk about like, okay, when we say, when we say all oh, this is about power imbalance and therefore there was no consent, we haven't done any of the work that, you know, right, not right thinking, but well thinking people are tr trying to think well, um, in other words, authentically about this stuff. Uh, we haven't done any of that work. And the moment somebody like me says we need to do the work, then I'm a rape apologist. <laughs> What you're saying just tends to the, um, it shows the emotive side of the issue as well, which is yeah. really, really hard to get past. I mean, and I think, I mean, that seems to me to be one of the driving forces of um, expressions of Me Too, which is that, uh, and t tell me what you think about this, it's that it's, you know, even set aside even the thing about consent. I mean, uh, I don't think, as you say, sort of uh, a, a well-thinking uh, person would say that all claims about sexual violence uh, should be taken as truth, where, uh, but instead that should at least be taken seriously. Sure, of course. Yes. Yeah, I th and I think that, that's I think that that's a driving force of the Me Too. Mm. Uh, well, you say it's not a movement, yeah. I don't think it yeah, is. Why do you say it? Can you say why? 
Oh God. I mean, I, for several reasons, I think that's a, that's a great example that you just gave, right? So the ha- and this relates to the question of why it isn't a movement because of the hashtagification of the whole thing, right? Um, the tickets commodified? Yes. Or? So, so, but I mean, that's one reason. So in other words, there's this hash, the hashtag believe women. I mean, this is like almost fascist in some way, like, because, because it's asking you to suspend like any disbelief or judgment or like skepticism. Yeah, like of any kind. And then they'll be like, well, in the, so the one response to that is, well, we don't really mean believe women, but they do actually. And that, that it, it's not, it's not, it's not a call to take sex assault seriously. It's a very different thing. Of course, we should take sexual assault allegations seriously, but you know, take sexual, hashtag take sexual assault seriously wouldn't trend. <laughs> Or it wouldn't get clicks or whatever. So there's a there's a huge amount of commodification going on. I mean, I would I I would I don't even know how to do this research. Somebody who works in some other field who's able to do this would like I should get my some of my business school colleagues or something to do this. Like where if you could like try and figure out how much like just some rough estimate of how much money has actually been made, um, you know, off on the back as it were or off of off the back of me too. Uh, so it's commodified. It's commodified. Number one, it's um, it's undifferentiated. So it's, in other words, it, uh, it the commodification operates along standard capitalist logic, which leftists are supposed to be uncomfortable with. <laughs> so and, what do you mean by that? Uh, oh no, because it's like, just is, operating like it's just a fucking. It's oh sorry, you can take out my swearing. There's it's another. <laughs> not a not a chance. <laughs> You know, and so it it becomes. It's just another. It's another. It's a, so capitalism will relentlessly create markets, um, and it, it has been radically successful in in creating one here, right? Okay, so can I just to bring it all back to where we talked at the beginning then, and sort of your 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 sort of uh, criticisms of postmodernism? Do you think the Me Too movement is postmodern? Uh, so right, so sorry. So the way the ways in which um, postmodernism is problematic. Yes. So okay. So so I had actually written down two ways in which postmodernism is problematic. We only talked about one, in the sense um, that it neglects uh, real effects. So so the standard criticism of postmodernism would be one of the standard criticisms would be that it ignores real effects. So you're saying we could say one of the standard criticisms of Me Too. Is that it ignores actual effects right. in the world? Uh, yes. So I think that broadly speaking, that's true in the sense that it is an, it is calling for change and reform on a policy level. And this point is actually really important, the policy aspect to all of this. It's calling for change and reform on a policy level without – I've seen a lot – without any real attention – Exactly to this. So you've set that up really well. Thank you. Exactly to the question of who will win and who will lose um, uh, uh, in society um, if we adopt the sorts of policy reforms and as well as affective dispositions um, towards the problem as it is constructed by the hashtag. <laughs> um, I think that's true. Do you think there's like a sort of degree of homogeneity about uh, – yes. How it's how it's presented, at least online and social media. Yeah, I mean, one one of the other, 
I just want to get this on the table and see what you think about this as, as you're a great person to have on, on the line about this because the other standards or common critique of postmodernism um, is that it comes from the moral realists, right? So, mm. and I've had like extensive fights with some philosopher at Rutgers over over <laughs> over you know my lack of commitment to moral realism. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. how could you? <laughs> yeah, like, what? You don't know, it's like, yeah, so. So when you say moral realism, you mean like, um, that that good is objective and. Yeah, that, that, that right and wrong are, you know, things in the in the world, right? Uh, okay. Uh, that morality is a thing, so there is a right answer, and, and now. And he said to me, actually, on Twitter, which is actually a good a good observation, he's like, well, you sound like somebody who may be a realist, but then believes that we, you know, given the limitations of, of like, human epistemological op- modes of operating in the world, we're unable to actually access it. And I was like, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. But but if you're going to if you're going to say that, then it doesn't matter whether there's moral realism or not, because we'll never know what it, morals are real, because you'll never be able to discover them. <laughs> but. So whatever, but but I think but that's impo- important here too because Me Too is claiming uh, is a basic in in some sense like a moral is a moral realist project, and so all of this was in the context of something I had said about consent and its frailty, and his moral realist response, you know, came from it was triggered by by my Me Too thing, right? So. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's really interesting framing. I think Me Too is, yeah, fallible, um, on all those levels. Where do you see any positive inroads, uh, in this debate, or is there anything that's given you encouragement, or is there anything that you've gone, uh, oh yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a really good example of what I'm trying to do, and it's a really good example of, as a socialist, making the world a better place? Yeah, so I will give you an example. There are a couple. Some people might be surprised, but anyway, there's an example, and I'm going to be, but people will hate this because it's so funny. You can't win on anything. There's the, so my example is uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Okay, so so you've been following, I'm sure, even just tangentially the headlines about is. the the Me Too. Should I reprise the, just very briefly that there? Uh, briefly, yes. Not everybody might have right. heard of it. So, yeah. uh, so the United States is going through um, the confirmation process of uh, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, who's obviously a Trump nominee. Um, they're trying to, you know, and the effort is to make the court more conservative because it's quite split now. This would this would tip it um, toward the conservative uh agenda whatever um and the real problem there is that look lifetime is appointments this is absurd but appointments judicial appointments to the supreme court are um like lifetime appointments <laughs> and the guy's like 50 so he can be there for the next 50 years um and he's a complete asshole <laughs> <laughs> is that your no, no, no there's no other way to say it. it is my it's my professional opinion that brett kavanaugh is an asshole so I'm very comfortable saying he's an asshole because you know he's he's against choice and against uh, against it. I mean God everything that any any liberal um, even many liberal any conservatives in Canada and the UK would 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 find him abhorrent and indeed many in the Republican Party in the US do as well. But anyway, so looks like he's set. The confirmation hearings were last right. week. Looks like he's or sorry the week before last. Looks like he's set to get. Um, to get uh, confirmed uh, it was supposed to be this week 
And then there's a woman who uh, alleges she is, um, her name is Dr. Ford. I think she lives in California and she's a psychologist, interestingly. Um, and uh, she, she alleges that he um, assaulted her in high school. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, now there's a whole bunch of other details people might be interested in if they want to read it. She ended up actually doing a polygraph test. Um, like, so there's significant indicators of the reliability of this claim. She's also, um, ready to submit to, uh, questioning, um, in the Senate. She's going to give testimony in the Senate. There's a bit of a question of the timeline of that right now. But the larger point is, this is a meet, this, none of this would have been possible. Not that it wouldn't have been possible because we had Anita, Her Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas and the sexual assault allegations in the 90s um, with his confirmation. But the likelihood of such an allegation in the wake of this Me Too thing um, is higher now uh, because of Me Too. And it's getting much more social attention because of Me Too. Um, uh, and this is a clear, this is a Me Too story. So it's being, this people are just saying this is in the name of me too and you know what? i don't care great i think me too is an ideology and is not is overall not good for society but if we can use i will do anything to take i would want i'm not me personally i would want americans who are in a position anyone in america who's in a position to do anything to take down this guy you know short of physical violence uh should do that so from a from a from a tactical perspective, right. I don't care if overall Me Too is bad. I'm very willing to be extremely critical of Me Too and at the same time say yes, absolutely use it to take down this animal. <laughs> you know. Well, it can also go. The, the problem is this. You know, it, it can also be used by conservatives to take down liberals, etc. But in this instance, I'm very comfortable resorting to it. So you use the resources you have in your arsenal, basically. Yes, exactly. But I don't think it's a very standard left. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you make your interventions where you can and you uh, you, you, you do your best with the tools available to you to uh, improve the material conditions of the world, I guess would be the sort of the socialist perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is optimistic. <laughs> the idea that this, that's what I'm saying. This is wonderful. The idea that we can, ha we can, we now are more able than we were previously. I see. To take down a political opponent is a very good thing from a socialist perspective. Heidi, Matthews, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been very fun. Come on, Jimmy. Who are you going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics... Long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love.